So as I mentioned, I want to start giving some series of talks on what I call Dharma in daily life, practice in daily life. And um, I was just talking to another group the other day about speech, and I thought it would be a good topic for this group, um, because it is one of the most challenging parts of uh, how we integrate the teachings and practices of Buddhism into the nitty-gritty, daily, messy, complicated parts of our lives and our relationships. You know, you get, we get handed down these teachings that seem very clear and linear and precise, and then it's like, well, how does this work when my partner's, you know, blowing up in my face or my kid's having a tantrum or my boss has it in for me or... You know, I'm just exhausted and tired, and I have to, you know, engage with people I don't want to talk to, and you know, so it gets a lot less clear, as you know. And especially when we are caught up in our own stuff, our own emotional waves, our own difficulties, and we start to talk before we've engaged our brain, and then you know, we get ourselves into trouble, as you know. Somebody said, "Speak when you're angry, and you'll make the best speech you'll never, you'll ever regret." <laughs> there's this cartoon I like a lot it's, it's from Bizarro and there's a picture of a man who's just looks like he's just come home from the office and there's a note pinned to the door seemingly from his wife and it says Dear Kirby despite your years of endless criticism and ridicule I have finally attained enlightenment I am all knowing all seeing I am transcendent I am everywhere and nowhere You, on the other hand, can go suck an egg. (laughs) This is an example where the the enlightened experience hasn't quite integrated itself into wise speech. Shakespeare wrote, Mind your speech a little lest... Mind your speech a little lest you should mar your own fortunes. So one of the stories that we often tell when we're talking about this subject is this story of the samurai and the monk and the power of words because power words are incredibly uh, incredibly powerful so there's a uh, a little monk sitting in the marketplace in Japan during the era of the samurai and this uh, samurai warrior had heard about the virtue of this monk came to check him out and uh, was a skeptic of Buddhism, and he said, okay, monk, the Buddha talked about heaven and hell. Show me, where, where is heaven? Where is hell? And the little monk opens his eyes, he's meditating, he looks up, and his face kind of gnaws a little, and he looks the samurai up and down, he's like, you scruffy, ignorant, good-for-nothing, you call yourself a samurai? You're a disgrace to the samurai class. And he goes on and on and on about what terrible samurai warriors and how scruffy and decent. And of course, you don't talk like that to a samurai, right? A big one anyway. So this is, is, is the samurai's getting angry and the monk's going on and on about how what a disgrace he is to the samurai class, and pulling his sword in fury. He's going to chop the man's head off. And just when he's about to strike, the monk says, that is hell. And that moment, the samurai comes out of his angry stupor, and he realized, "Wow, this 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 young monk, this young monk was prepared to risk his life to give me this teaching on heaven and hell. I, this is really this is an amazing being." And he starts to feel all this appreciation and love and gratitude. And the monk says, "And that is heaven." So a few words, you know, can can shift as you know. We can be we wake up one day feeling really great, and we get a a, a voicemail, a text, and somebody says something, or we get an email where the, the, the meaning is hard to decipher and or it feels like it's a little biting. And our mood can be darkened in an instant. Someone says something rude or harsh or critical or judgmental, and we take it in. We can be jolted. So when the Buddha was... The Buddha talked a lot about speech with his monks and also with the lay people um, because he knew this was a really challenging area. But I think about when when the Buddha was giving this teaching, 
he didn't have to deal with email and voicemail and texting and Twittering and Facebook and what would the Buddhist Facebook page be like? <laughs> He'd have a lot of friends. <laughs> so there's so many more ways now to miscommunicate. You know, somebody sends us an email we don't like and we're, you know, and we send an email back, you know, and we accidentally press send, reply all and suddenly it's gone to 500 people and we're venting about our boss, you know. Or we're on hold, you know, for an hour on, with United Airlines, and you get through, and they say, "Oh, I'm sorry, this is domestic. You need to go to international. That's the other number." You know, and what happens? What do you say? It is, "Oh, may you be happy. May you be peaceful." No, probably not. <laughs> you, go, you say something else. Your tone rises. You know. So I was just listening to NPR this morning about Facebook. You know, it's, an, it's another another level of the way we communicate and the way we share information, and and how there's, there's this incredible amount of miscommunication and people hearing things that we don't want to hear about us. You know, because it gets sent out everywhere. So um, it's a little more complicated now. White speech, not just in conversation, not just in live person to person. There's all these other forms we need to bring our attention to. So when I read the <coughs> when I read the texts, the original teachings, what's interesting to note is that the time the times that the Buddha's students most get it, most wake up, most attain enlightenment, is actually listening to him talk. Not when they're off in a cave, not when they're sitting under a, under a tree meditating, but actually live. That there's such a power in the transmission, in the conversation, and uh, a direct transmission of teachings and he really used that he really he was really a crafts a craftsman of words and he really used his his speech to that effect to really help people wake up and i've been with teachers <coughs> in asia and in the west who just have this exquisite capacity to articulate that which is really inarticulable that's a word <laughs> they can articulate about the mystery and silence and the vastness and the great unknown and we know, and it resonates with us. And we go, yes, that's true. I couldn't possibly ever repeat what they said because I have no idea what it was. But I know that what they're speaking is true. And it's the power of words. Or we can use words to inspire. You know, I'm thinking about how many people I know inspired by listening to Obama's speeches. You know, this address he just gave uh, recently. Incredibly inspiring. Uh, so we can use that, that our words in that way to inspire, to motivate. Because not everybody finds that inspiring, but most people do. Lyndon Johnson once wrote, Did you ever think that making a speech on economics is a lot like pissing down your own leg? It seems really hot to you, but it never does to anybody else. <coughs> so sometimes we think we're giving these great, you know, speeches, and, well, maybe we're just pissing down our own leg. <laughs> So words are also ways that we can create great beauty in the world. All the literature, all the great poetry, all the writing, all the, the lyrics. You know, just a, it's a beautiful manifestation of the human heart to, that, that expresses joy and love and sorrow and the human predicament. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, Speech is an arrangement of notes that will never be played again. Speech is an arrangement of notes that will never be played again. I love that. But whatever we articulate, whatever we utter, that's it. That's the moment. That's a, it's a unique moment in time. And we have so many great poets and writers. This is from Rumi. I think one of the masters of articulating that which is inexpressible. It's called freshness. When it's cold and raining, you are more beautiful. And the snow brings me even closer to your lips. The inner secret that which was never born, you are that freshness, and I am with you now. I can't explain the goings or the comings. You enter suddenly, and I am nowhere again, inside the majesty. And maybe to the rational mind, we don't even get what he's talking about, but some, somewhere that speaks to us. 
I can't explain the comings or the goings, but you enter suddenly the mystery, the silence, awakening enters us. I am nowhere again. I dissolve into the mystery, inside the majesty. This is from St. Francis, who is writing about a journey he just took. And he said, Such love does the sky now pour that whenever I stand in a field, I have to ring out the light when I get home. Maybe you feel like that sometimes when you walk in these hills and these beautiful summer days that happen to be freezing summer days, but they're still summer days. Or the, the power of words that can be tremendously healing when somebody offers us words of forgiveness that we've been waiting to hear for 10, 20, 30 years. Or when we do the same, when we can finally open our hearts and realize the mistake of what we've done or what we've said or the way we've acted towards somebody. And this so often happens on people's deathbeds. This tremendous healing that happens through, through people opening their hearts and expressing that which was never been able to be said, perhaps in a whole lifetime. And there's a power of speaking what's true. The power of speaking what's true. How often do we really speak what's true to ourselves, to another? You know, I think about what happened in South Africa after the apartheid regime got dismantled and the, the truth and reconciliation um, process that went on there. That was really just a speaking of truth, speaking of the incredible suffering on, on, on people from that regime and the healing that happened. And, and connected to this um, similar reconciliation process in England between, uh, between victims and their offenders. And again, it's, it's the healing happens through just hearing people's stories and the speaking of the truth and the speaking of forgiveness. And then there's um, the power of words to create joy and humor. What would it be like if we didn't have humor in this world? It would be hard, wouldn't it? No jokes, no irony, no laughing at ourselves, no, no, no you know, the way we, we were able to not take ourselves so seriously. This is a, a cartoon from The Far Side, who is, is a picture of, um, so Gary Larson's uh, drawn this picture of a house and a tree and a, and a person with a dog and um, you know how in, in Vipassana practice we do the noting practice like breathing in breathing out hearing hearing thinking thinking so the man has a paintbrush and he's painted house on the house and door on the door and tree on the tree and dog on the dog and shirt on his shirt and pants on his pants and the man says now that should clear up a few things around here <laughs> So I heard this Buddhist joke the other day. I don't hear too many Buddhist jokes. So um, I have to preface the joke by explaining some of the words because they're in uh, Pali. So, so the Buddha gave this teaching called the three characteristics, the three, one of the three facets of life, that life is uh, suffering, impermanent, and selfless, everything in this world. Uh, so uh, uh, impermanent is a Nietzsche. So, suffering is Dukkha. Anicca is impermanence, and anatta is selflessness. Okay? So you got that part, right? This is the explanation. So, anicca, anatta, and dukkha walk into a bar. <laughs> dukkha, suffering, says, Oh, God, this sucks. Anicca, change, says, Don't worry, it's going to change. Anatta says, Who the hell do you think you're talking to? It's an in-joke, you know. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> oh, this cartoon that I read, I think this is from the New Yorker. It says, two dolphins swimming in the ocean. One says to the other, you know, what I really think will bring me to completion in this life, if I have some overweight, middle-aged, white tourist from Nebraska come swim on my back in the ocean, that's really going to bring me to fruition. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so another beautiful thing we can do with words is, uh, through our speech, is express our heart with appreciation, gratitude, acknowledgement, tr- 
tremendous, tremendous thing to, to give to another. You know, often we feel a lot of these things, gratitude and appreciation and care and respect, and, but how rarely does that actually come out? And it's such a gift, it's one of the gifts we can give to people. I was in some, uh, I was actually dancing when this happened, and some acquaintance came behind up to me and she said, um, the world is a better place for you being in it. And it was really a powerful, it's like, what a, what a sweet thing to say. I didn't really know this person that well. Somehow she knew me from somewhere, maybe from Spirit Rock. And uh, so I started saying that to people that I feel that about. The world is, a, because it's true, the world is a better place for every one of you being here. So there's, you know, many wonderful things we can do with the power of our words. And there's also many terrible things we can do with our words. You know, Jack likes to tell this story of, um, I think it's, Annie Bennett, about a time she's writing about a time in her childhood. Um, when it's, it's, I think it's Annie Bennett, anyway, somebody, and um, was a wayward uh, young girl in a difficult, very painful childhood and difficult teen years and ran away from home a lot. And one of the days she got picked up by the police and brought home. And this was uh, sort of after many, many times of trying to run away from a very abusive situation. And um, in a moment of of bad timing, she asked her mother as she entered the house, escorted by the police, she said, Mother, I'm I'm sorry, Uh, do you still love me? And her mother turned around and said, how can anybody ever love you? And she's writing about this event 50 years later, saying it took 50 years to work through that. You know, we've all had our version of that, perhaps, of something someone said to us, either near and dear or afar. And the pain that that causes and the tremendous wounding it can, it can, it can inflict and the, the, the long time it can take to heal from those words. So we can experience that personally, we experience it socially, the, the, the damage that's caused by you know, our public figures, you know, politicians. I mean, we, we sort of don't really expect too much truth from our politicians, really. But at the same time, but when we hear, hear about it, when it's found out, it brings tremendous distrust and cynicism and negativity. I, and I've just been reading about what's been happening in England, my home turf, and um, all the lies that have been coming out about all the different scams uh, the government ministers have been doing to not pay taxes, you know, having the, the government pay for the chauffeurs and for their yachts and for their private jets and, you know, all these things that politicians can like to do. And, but the, the, what, what was, I think, most damning was the, the deceit and the lies and, and the incredible public distrust that it creates So, as I said, the Buddha talked a lot about this area because he knew it was such a a painful area, such a a source of potential suffering and and a tricky area to navigate as as we move through our lives. He said, The wise ones fashion speech with their thought, sifting it as grain is sifted through a sieve. Wise ones fashion speech with their thought. They reflect on their thought before, you know, often we just... With it like this, you know, there's not much gap between thought and mouth and spoken word. And, you know, how many times have you wanted to take a word back or a statement back, you know, to a loved one, to a child, to a parent? And of course we can't. And that leaves its mark. So when the Buddha talked about wise speech, he, he talked about it in the context of not just about creating a bunch of rules but how we can live wisely, how we can live kindly, how we can create more uh, well-being for ourselves, for each other, how we can create more harmony in the world. So one of the first things he talked about was our motivation. What's our motivation for, for talking, for conversing, for sharing something? And we don't necessarily think about it that much. Why are we saying what we're saying? Why do I want to, why do I want to communicate this to somebody? He said, all things are preceded by the heart and ruled by the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering will follow you like the cart follows the ox. Speak or act with a calm and bright heart, then happiness will follow you like a shadow that never leaves. 
So when we can get clear about the, the goodness of our intention, knowing when our intention is off, knowing when we, we, we're saying something to harm somebody because we want some vengeance, we want to hurt somebody because we've been hurt, to know that that's just sowing more seeds of pain for ourselves, for each other. So the, the Buddha had some very, I think, very uh, practical guidelines which I found really helpful in navigating how to bring in some, some wisdom, some mindfulness into speech. So he talked about refraining from four kinds of speech. And the first one is obvious, um, refraining from uh, any speaking anything that's untrue, which may sound pretty obvious, but there are, of course, is incredible shades of truth. He said, herein someone avoids lying and abstains from it. One speaks the truth, is devoted to the truth, is reliable, is worthy of confidence, not a deceiver of others. Thus one never knowingly speaks a lie, either for sake of one's own advantage or the sake of another's advantage or the sake of anything whatsoever. So commitment to the truth, devoted to the truth. What would it be like if we lived in a world where we only spoke the truth? What would it be like listening to ads, you know? that didn't, you know, didn't misconstrue the truth slightly. This is an ad, this is, um, this is a Corona ad, and uh, so it's got a picture of two bottles of beer, one's Corona Extra, one's Corona Light, and, and the picture, it says on the top of, the Corona Extra, it says Extra, on the top of Corona Light, it says Enlightened. <laughs> so you can drink your Enlightened beer, uh, this is another one. This is um, this is this is it says this is an actual photo of a woman in Nirvana. You want to know what Nirvana looks like? Drinking a cup of America's favorite grapefruit juice, Tropicana. That's Nirvana. You can forget all this meditation nonsense. You just drink some orange juice. Or how about this? This is even better for you yoga practitioners. New chai latte. Achieve total relaxation without ever. Touching a yoga mat. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> or for you eco drinkers out there, we have 360 vodka. Vodka with a green state of mind. <laughs> Apparently the label is recycled or something, so it's very green, you know. So... You know, smoking is good for you. That's what they said in the 50s, right? Recommended by all your doctors. They have these doctors, you know, recommending smoking. So we know what happens in, in that world. And there's a lot of spin. There's a lot of, there's a lot of nonsense. And a lot of cynicism happens because we just see it and go, oh, it's just more untruth. And it's amazing what's said in the, in, in the name of truth that's actually not. So, so it's all very well to say, well, yes, speak the truth, that's really good, I know that, you know. Um, but it's, what, what's really interesting to look at is why we don't speak the truth. Because there are many, many ways that we shade the truth, right? And, you know, many, many reasons. You know, maybe we're in an awkward situation, maybe we're horribly embarrassed about something we've done. Maybe we don't want to really reveal how we're feeling because we're feeling completely vulnerable or we feel like we're on the edge of a nervous breakdown. You know, we don't want to say to somebody, hey, how are you doing? Well, you know, actually I'm really feeling like deficient and really sad and hopeless and I feel like there's just no point in going on and, and they kind of, they, you know, you can see they glaze over and like, oh God, I shouldn't have said anything. You know, we want to appear strong, we want to appear together, so we present ourselves in a certain way and we omit certain things, you know. Or where I come from in England, good morning, morning, how are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. <laughs> it's just what we do there. You know? Jolly good. <laughs> Jolly good. Splendid. And I know, you know, I could be calling someone and they've just lost someone near and dear. How are you doing? Oh, we're fine, we're fine, thanks, we're fine. 
or in intimate relationships. You know, how often are we fully truthful in intimate relationships? The nitty-gritty of revealing all the things that piss us off, you know, get us irritated or frustrate us or we feel that they're intolerable or we have judgments about, you know, we're maybe afraid to admit how judgmental we are, or how critical we are. So, you know, it's just good to reflect on the ways that we, that we shade the truth, you know. Maybe you notice how you tell a story about the past, and every time you, you tell it, it gets a little more embellished, a little more interesting. You look a little better in the limelight, you know, more funny, more brave, more valiant, whatever, you know. It's just the way that we exaggerate. You know, oh, it was just a little white lie. So, and then there are also the way that we talk to ourselves, you know, we, so much of our speech is about, is towards, in, is in our own heads, the way we talk to ourselves, or we, the way we talk about ourselves. How truthful is the way that you share yourself? How truthful is your evaluation of yourself? You know, if you wrote out all the judgments that you constantly are harboring on to yourself about, oh, you're no good, you know, you'll never... You know, fill in the blanks. You're not good enough at. Is that really true? Would would everybody that know you agree with that? Or are we happy? You know, kind of spinning these tales to ourselves. So speaking truthfully, speaking harshly, the Buddha said, restrain, refrain from speaking harshly. Whether that's on the phone with United Airlines and you've been on hold for three hours. Or when we get upset, when we get angry, when we get mad, you know, maybe we feel comfortable doing that in our cars on the freeway. You, know. you, the Buddha said, harsh speech was abusive speech, insults, and sarcasm. So sarcasm can also be, you know, in the way we use humor. You know, there's a lot of truth in humor that we can't bring ourselves to say. So we make a joke with a little sarcasm. But people feel it. We feel it. You know, when we're, we're at the end of the joke, at the end of the sarcasm. There's a, in the Charlie Brown cartoon. Lucy's in a psychology booth, and Charlie Brown goes up and asks, "You know, I need some help with this problem." And Lucy says, "The problem with you, Charlie Brown, is that you're you." So, and then um, the Buddha talked about refraining from frivolous speech. And this is more for, in the context of meditation, if you're meditating a lot, if you're in silence a lot, and you end up talking about, you know, Brad and Angelina for five hours, it's not so conducive (laughs) to the meditation spirit. So, um, the Buddha had all these interesting um, sort of criteria of what he thought was was supportive in the meditation world for, for conversation and what he thought wasn't so helpful. So conversation about kings and queens. That happens a lot in England, actually. It doesn't happen so much here. but um, Conversation about governments, big topic conversation, entertainment and gambling. So if we took those out of our, out of our conversation, you know, our everyday conversation, what would we talk about? No movies, no Obama, no Republicans, no Democrats, no Schwarzenegger. So again, it wasn't not so much that that's bad or wrong, but in the context of what supports the mind that's conducive to meditation. You know, if we chatter and Twitter all day, how do we feel at the end of a day? You know, we feel a little haggard, a little sort of spun out, and then. Lastly, he talked about refraining from gossip, idle speech. And again, obviously, because so often, whoever we're gossiping about, it gets back to them. Maybe it's us who we're getting gossiped about. And the pain of that. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, took this on as a practice. He decided not to speak about anybody who wasn't present for a month. And he said 90% of his conversation fell away. It's actually a really great practice. Try doing it. Try talking for a day, not talking about anybody who isn't present in the room. Because usually when we're talking about somebody who's not present, 
we often say things that we wouldn't say to them to their face. Or, it's another, or another practice is only say something that you would be willing to say to their face. So, and this is why the... Um, actually, this, I want to go back to gossiping to give the context of why these uh, guidelines are given. He said, one avoids tail-bearing, it's a great word, tail-bearing, gossip, and abstains from it. What one has heard here, one does not repeat there, so as not to cause dissension there. And what one has heard there, one does not repeat here, so as not to cause dissension here. Thus one unites those that are divided, and those that are united one encourages. Concord gladdens one, one delights and rejoices in concord, and it's concord that one spreads by one's words. That's a very beautiful intention that we use our words to bring concord, to bring harmony, not to create divisiveness and polarity, which of course is already the world is incredibly at the mercy of. So another set of guidelines that I find really practical and in some ways more than those the restraint with those four um, areas to refrain from is uh, the context that we're talking. The Buddha said, make sure you reflect on whether this is the right time, the right place, the right person, and the right subject. Really helpful. He also said, speak only what's truthful and what's useful. So sometimes we can get the idea, well, you know, I'm going to speak the truth, and then I'm going to speak the truth, and I'm going to let everybody have it, because I'm firstly, that's what I'm supposed to do now. Now I'm in this Buddhist thing. But there's the truth, and then there's the truth, and what's useful. And we all know a lot of truth about the, all the people in our lives, and yet it's not necessarily so helpful to share all of it. Sometimes some, one of the things we have to sort of hold people back from when they leave retreat. When, we, when you do a silent retreat, you get a lot of clarity, a lot of insight. And the first thing people want to do when they get home is share all the insights about their, their other half when they get home, or their friends, or their family, or whatever. And yet, that's not necessarily the, the, the wisest or the most kind thing to do. You know? So when think about when you're speaking, obviously speaking the truth, but what's useful in that, in that situation with that person? So the right time, what is the right time? You know, for me, you know, so not being in the heat of the moment. You know, how, many, how many things have we said when we've been flared up with someone said something, it's been, been attacking, and we feel hurt, we feel mistrusting, we feel defensive, and we want to lash out, we want to, vengeance arises, revenge. And we say things that we really regret. Or for me, for example, having a conversation with my partner at 11.30 at night when I'm tired and I'm hungry and I've got an early morning meeting and we, we're having a big conversation about our relationship, well, that's not such a great time to have a conversation with me. You know? right, and I, I really reflect on that because when I have those conversations at midnight, they don't go so well because I'm tired and I'm hungry and I want to go to bed. Or the right person, thinking about the right the person we're talking to. Do we share everything with our three-year-old children? Or our 80-year-old grandmother? Or the boss at work? Or the right place? Where is the right place to, to communicate what you want to communicate? You know, in the middle of work, do you want to be talking about your sex life on your phone with your partner? You know? Or if you're, you know, sometimes I'm counseling couples or counseling people who are about to have a very difficult conversation with somebody, potentially heated, potentially this person may get aggressive or violent, and, you know, to be, to be really careful about where we have these conversations in public, in a safe space, where it supports you. And the right subject. Again, what's, what kinds of things do we want to be talking with particular people? Again, particularly thinking about children, Or talking about something that we have no idea of, no, we have no idea about, but we're happy to be an authority on. <laughs> I love when I have these conversations with my mum about meditation and Buddhism, and, and she's quite happy to lecture me about all of it. And 
bless her heart, she doesn't know so much about Buddhism. She hasn't been studying it for 25 years. So, um, I don't know why I'm saying that. Anyhow, bless you, Mom. I love you. <laughs> okay. Not talking about somebody who wasn't present. Okay, that's enough for now. I'm going to try to go. <laughs> I love those lectures. So lastly, what I wanted to comment on was um, the place of, of right speech um, around not being passive. Sometimes when we hear this teaching, there's people feel somehow, well, I'm, I'm now suddenly straight-jacketed. You know, I can't speak what's true, or I can't uh, speak out against injustice or against things that I see that are wrong. And that, I think, for me, that's also part of why speech is, is when, we, when we see clearly and we do see the truth, being that voice, being that... Uh, you know, enacting that clarity in our in our in our speech and our actions. You know, I think about people like Aung San Suu Kyi, who you know, has been in house arrest now for what thirty years, forty years, just about to probably be re put in house arrest, and never ceases from speaking the truth. Or the Dalai Lama, what a wonderful example, speaks the truth, but does so kindly, does so wisely, compassionately without any animosity towards the Chinese, and yet he's very emphatic about human rights and Tibetan rights and the need for self-governance and the injustice and the abuse that's happening in Tibet. So mostly what I want to leave you with is the idea of, of... you know, waking up to the power of our words and knowing that our words can bring tremendous harmony, tremendous love, tremendous goodness, tremendous ease and rapport. And we have that choice. And it partly requires a lot of mindfulness, requires a lot of presence to stay tracking ourselves to stay stra- tracking our mind, to tracking our reactivity, to be able to hold our reactivity so we're not just speaking from a reactive mind. Because when we're reactive, we're not so present. We're, we're usually a little, a little more obscured in our clarity. <clears throat> so what I wanted to do for the last uh, 20 minutes or so is just do a little practice um, with you, a little exercise uh, where we practice bringing a little more mindfulness, a little more presence into our, into our talking and listening. So one thing that I forgot to talk about was listening, that so much of the power of uh, communication is through listening. And mostly, well, I think what's most lacking in conversation and in communication is our ability to listen. The more we meditate, the more we practice mindfulness, practice awareness, we deepen the capacity, we deepen the, 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 the ability to be present, to give that gift of presence through listening. Listening to our bodies, listening to our hearts, listening to the reactivity. So what I want to practice is some mindful talking and listening in pairs. So it's going to be interesting in here because there's a lot of people here tonight and it's going to be quite loud. So you can just sort of imagine you're in an airport or something and you're having a conversation and you're just letting all the other sounds be background and you're just giving your attention to the person you're doing this exercise with. So um, and what we're going to do is... um, we're going to do a practice called Vipassana Out Loud. <laughs> so Vipassana is this practice of mindfulness, basically means seeing clearly. So mostly when we do this meditation practice, mostly all the time we do this meditation practice, it's in silence. So in this exercise, what we're going to be doing is you're just going to be reporting to the person you're doing this, your, your partner, 
um, what's happening in your experience. So you can begin with something like, now I'm noticing, oh, there's a lot of sounds. So I'll, 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 I'll demonstrate for a moment. So as I'm sitting here, I'm noticing the brightness of this light and the warmth of this blanket on my knees. I'm noticing there's a lot of people here tonight and they're all looking at me. I'm noticing a little, little tightness in my solar plexus and um, my breath is um, short and I'm feeling a little more self-conscious now. I've started to do this exercise <laughs> and I'm listening to my voice and I'm uh, noticing the bright lights here. I'm feeling the feet on my floor, and as I close my eyes, I start to feel more centered and grounded and at ease. So you're just basically tracking your experience, and instead of keeping it to yourself, you're articulating, you're sharing it with another person. Basically reporting whatever's on top, whatever's most obvious. And the person who's listening is just listening. They're just giving their full presence of attention, but they're also being present to their own experience. Normally when we're talking, listening, our attention goes out through our ears and eyes, out, and we sort of leave our body. And our body is the greatest resource, the greatest refuge in staying grounded in communication. The body is a field of information that we can, we can draw on as we're talking and listening. So, so we'll get into pairs and... Let, let's, let's get into pairs now. I'll, I'll, I'll guide you through it. So just turn to the person nearest to you, someone you came with or somebody new. Okay, so um, just come into silence for a second. Just and close your eyes. Bring your attention into your body. Just notice what's happening. Maybe a little curiosity or awkwardness or anticipation or embarrassment or excitement or dread. Oh no, not one of these things. California. <laughs> so open your eyes. So if eye contact feels too too much, you can just have your eyes down, but just taking the other person in. So the person with the shortest hair is partner A. Okay. Save that decision-making process. Okay. So come back to silence. That was hopefully going to avoid a conversation anyhow. Um, <laughs> so partner A is going to be the person who just begins to speak just very simply, casually just, just talking about what you're noticing and now I'm feeling, now I'm aware and partner B is going to listen we'll do it for a few minutes I'll ring a bell and we'll switch roles but the, the, main, pra- the main part of the practice is to really stay with yourself whether you're talking or listening stay in your body as you're doing this exercise okay, carry on
So just taking a moment to go back into silence, just notice what's happening in your body. Simple exercise, probably stimulates a lot. Now switching roles, so partner B will do the talking and partner A will simply listen. So dropping into silence for a second. Just drop into silence for a second. Just notice what's arising. Body, heart, mind. Conversation, communication brings up a lot. Notice the evaluating mind. How did I do? Do they like me? Was I spiritual enough? Did I do it right? When is this ending? This class is going on till midnight, actually. We're doing doing a communication intensive. All right, so thank you, partner. We, we, there's a lot more we could do with this, but... Um. So any, um, any comments about the exercise or about this theme of speech? Why speech? Any observations, any reflections? True. So the, the comment, the, the comment is, the analogy, the, the, the focusing on the conversation, the listening and talking is very analogous to focusing on the breath. It's the same thing, the same practice, the same. Thank you. The same principle. So you know, we. It's really important that we 
have a meditation practice and it's important we learn how to translate that practice into our lives. That's really you know, how to live this stuff. And it's not easy. We can't stop in the middle of a party and say, hey, hold on a minute, I'm just going to tell you what's happening. You have to listen. <laughs> so it's good to practice a little. Yeah. Other comments, observations? Yeah. Settling was because of looking from the partner's eyes. You know, you're trying to give someone their full attention and not just sitting there looking down and listening because you're trying to make the contact where they know you're listening. And that kind of instant intimacy was a little not, not nerve wracking, but it was just a new thing and it was just sort of made it a little bit difficult or mm-hmm. uncomfortable or something. There's something about it that was just. Yeah, so that the, the intimacy that he's saying, that the intimacy that can happen when. When there's a lot of presence, a lot of, and it's and it's a certain undefended presence, there, there is a, it is intimate, and um, has its own challenges, and its own um, we can have our own discomfort around that, around that level of intimacy, and it's also a very, you know, it's a beautiful doorway into deep communication. Uh-huh. And um, it became part of it. It just kept me centered and I was very mindful of what I was hearing. Yeah, beautiful. And I never thought of staying present in my body when I was listening before. Yeah, beautiful. So she was noticing how, how much being present in the body supports being present to the other person. So I have a teacher um, who, um, a friend of mine was asked studying with him and doing one-on-one work with him and, and was getting mad because the teacher wasn't giving him much attention. And the teacher said, I never give anybody my full attention. I give them about 30% and I give my body about 60-70%. And I listen through, you know, and that's what, what I do when I work with people, students and clients. Is, you know, we, the, the body is such a great you know, vessel of sensory you know, aliveness. And so we can listen through our bodies and get tremendous information. Like when I'm listening to a talk, I'm mostly listening through my body, because you know there's a, there's a there's a resonance that happens in our body that, that we that we can attune to, and so we get a lot more information. So it's great that you saw that. Yeah, it sounds a little odd, you know, to listen through your body, not through your ears, but actually, you know, the it's all it's the body is the is the the, the vehicle, it's the, the container for all of our experience. A hand at the back there. I'm having a hard time um, with recognizing what is going on, I guess emotionally. I mean, right now in this time of my life, I'm trying to express myself and like really recognize. I, I believe for most of my life I put up like a certain wall or let anybody in so that I don't really get hurt and to recognize the emotions and feelings that I'm truly having like when I sit quiet and I feel like I'm very present I feel like honestly I'm not feeling anything and um, I was just I'm trying to figure out how to tap into what is re- what what is going on as I'm going through life things are happening there are variables that are going on and I don't know how to recognize the way that I'm dealing with them and I think very, I'm very on the surface, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to find a certain depth so that I, I can almost psychologically heal myself through mm-hmm. the situation. Yeah. Well, I, I, I first want to really honor the intention. You have a beautiful intention to want to really get to know yourself and get to know what's happening on a deep level in the midst of your life and whatever's going on on those deeper levels. So that intention will be the, the vehicle that combined with mindfulness is the vehicle that will allow you to understand that and understand yourself. But it takes time. It's a practice. And as you say, often meditation, because of the nature of meditation, it often supports a certain tranquility and quiet. And it's not where we necessarily feel the heat and the juiciness and the aliveness or the rawness of, of, uh, of the intensity of emotions that can happen in the, in the rest of our lives. So we again, we need to learn how to translate that presence that we develop in the sitting to as we're going about 
uh, work and uh, relationships and conversations. And it takes time. It's a practice, you know. So we don't just get it, you know. It's 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 a it's a this is a lifelong practice in my experience and opinion. And um, but that intention, that curiosity, staying curious, like what is this? What is happening? What am I feeling right now? What is going on? To really bring that spirit of inquiry as you go about your day will slowly uh, shine light on what's going on. So hang in there with it. Yeah, you know, and we, most of us haven't really been trained or educated, you know, to, to really how to be emotional, emotionally fluent, emotionally intelligent, as Daniel Goleman talks about. We, we weren't given those resources, most of us. So we have to. So it's like we 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 relearning or learning how to do this. Um, so good for you for giving it a go. And as I say, it does take patience. Yeah, last question. That's practice. That's right. And will I come back at some time and acknowledge that that it was not a good thing that I said? Mm -hmm. What I really meant was. Yeah, it's a, no. Thank you. It's a beautiful example because it, it's true. In, just like when we're meditating, in the beginning, you know, we you know we drift off for ten minutes in a thought, you know, in a whole series of thoughts, and we come back. It's like, wow, where did I go? Oh yeah, I was in Paris on my vacation last year. It was great, you know. And then you know, over time, it's like we we go away for one minute, you know, and then we maybe go away for twenty seconds, and then. Sometimes we see the thought arising and we go, oh, no, Paris, I'm not going to go there. Thank you. Back to the breath. And it's the same with communication and, and being, tracking ourselves in the moment. Sometimes, as you say, we often, we leave a situation and go, oh, this is what I merely really meant or what I really felt or really wanted to say. And as we get more mindful, this is in my experience, we can really track both the conversation and our emotion and our response and the whole dynamic because our capacity for presence deepens. So um, we start from that little yummy squeal back there, and, and we, you know, we, we learn, we grow. So it's beautiful that you're seeing that na- gap narrowing, and that's, that's part of the trajectory. So, so um, well, thank you, everybody, for uh, being here and uh, being willing to do the exercise. I know sometimes it's a little you know, vulnerable or exposing to suddenly be sharing yourself with a stranger or with your partner. Um, so um, next week, uh, Jack will be here, and we will be having the class in the upper retreat hall. Um, and we need extra volunteers for that event because it always takes a lot more work to have the event up there. So if you can help, please see Granya, the events coordinator. She's in the office in the back of the hall. Where's Granya? Are you here? She will be here. Um, and uh, have a wonderful week. And, and think about these. There's Granya in the back. And think about you know, taking one aspect of wise speech. Maybe you're going to not talk about, you know, vow to not talk about anybody who's not present, you know, for a week. Or, did I get that wrong? The other way around. That's what we always do. You know, I just vow to not, you know, to not embellish, to not exaggerate. 
So just take a simple aspect of this teaching and put it into practice. See what happens. So have a wonderful week of practice. Take a. Please take the chairs back to the corner, drive right out of Spirit Rock, and be happy. Or as happy as you can. <laughs>